0: Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. In a nation where over 300 languages reverberate from homes, workplaces, and public spaces, language is more than just a communication tool, it's a cultural lifeline that bridges our diverse communities. Our linguistic diversity isn't just colourful, it's vital and influential. It's a Punjabi radio podcast serving up global affairs alongside local news. It's a crucial health announcement rendered in Somali to ensure every community member is informed. It's the heartwarming banter between a shop owner and customers in Italian across a bustling Ligon Street in Melbourne. This linguistic diversity shapes individual identities, daily experiences and the character of public discourse. Yet the role and influence of non-English languages continue to prompt discussions that stretched into the heart of cultural integration, societal cohesion and the concept of belonging. In this episode, we delve into the nuances of Australia's linguistic diversity, exploring the far-reaching impacts from business interactions to media broadcasts and government communications and their ripple effect on our society's cohesion and shared multicultural story. Our guest today is Pino Migliarino, the Founder and Managing Director of Cultural Perspectives. Pino is known for his extensive experience in ethnic and multicultural affairs and has been a driving force in acknowledging and promoting the richness of Australia's cultural and linguistic diversity. His work focuses on facilitating dialogue between diverse communities and structures interested in diversity, thereby creating a valuable bridge that fosters mutual understanding. With his profound insights, we're set to have an enlightening discussion. Welcome, Pino.
1: Thank you, Anthea. Very happy to be here.
0: Well, um, we're delighted to have you here, especially since you describe yourself as a cultural disruptor. What uh, What does that actually mean to you?
1: Well, it's it, to me, it's quite specific. It is about um, not just accepting systems as they are, but trying to um, change them so that it will the greater diversity. And my frame of reference is culture and language is part of culture. So I love the idea. I mean, if I, a disruptor tends to have no framework. Um, Uh, an advocate is certainly there but I actually believe in trying to change the system and the system itself is then what makes me a cultural disruptor I quite (laughs) love that I mean uh, I I, and I've invited other people to also identify with that label
0: (laughs) it's a great term is is there um, any examples that you've got of over your life experience of a disruption that you've seen occur that's been successful
1: Uh, I suppose in terms of uh, approaches to things like aged care, certainly um, the ability to now structure services which meet linguistic and cultural diversity from within communities actually doing that is very much a change in terms of how aged care used to be delivered before. Um, But there are other major, major changes here, and we'll talk a lot about them today, The, the absolute plethora of of media which is uh now across our airwaves the the ability to actually recognize languages um uh, you know we test if a nazi our accreditation authority tests in over 60 languages that's about 40 more than any other country in the world mm-hmm. there are just so many things which we have actually disrupted the normal way of doing them to say there is a new legitimacy there is a new canon and that canon is diversity
0: it is um, a, a wonderful thing to travel around any city and uh, in Australia and see the the different labelling that occurs in, in multiple languages or even, uh, you know, the openness of signs on banks and various things mm. that suggest that they've got people who are multilingual in those facilities. Have you ever seen um, a, a pushback to that sort of thing happening?
1: I can yes, a very strong one. Um, the it was about fifteen years ago, and uh, Marrickville Council of all councils had a resolution uh, which attempted to be passed that no sign could exist in the municipality without an English translation around it. And many uh, commentators were very supportive of this, and it was really interesting. Oh. I felt I felt it was really interesting because. Um, um, Ultimately, signage is about marketing and Mm -hmm. about understanding your, your, um, audience and I thought the funniest one there was a reference to a video shop which sold and rented Vietnamese and and I, at that stage would have been probably Cantonese as well as Mandarin videos and I just couldn't believe that someone would want to know what it was selling because the product wasn't for them if they weren't <laughs> Vietnamese or, or Chinese speakers and but it, it got a lot of attention and it was around whether the mainstream society or the general society felt that it should not have access to something, that mm. it was almost exclusive from them. And I think that was a, an extraordinary cultural debate. Um, but invariably we move on and there's a sense that language is it's evolving and the multiplicity of languages evolve in Australia. And I think it's becoming now de rigueur and you're getting people actually tattooing themselves with Chinese characters, with um, <laughs> Sanskrit. So it, yeah. it certainly changed.
0: That That's true. It certainly has. But at the same time, there was for a while a myth that uh, if new Rivals were coming here and had come from non-English speaking backgrounds. That the best thing we could do with to, for them was to force them. To- to learn English, to make sure that everything was English so that they weren't necessarily going, uh, essentially reverting back to a Mm. language that they weren't necessarily going to use. And that has changed. There is um, now, I think, uh, quite a bit of evidence, uh, research evidence that suggests that in actual fact, maintaining your mother tongue actually helps you to learn English as well. Is that your understanding absolutely
1: Kino? true. Yeah, the pedagogy, the pedagogy around that is 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 quite strong, and and the evidence quite strong, uh, and it it affects bilingual households. Um, during my time in uh, with an organisation called CoAzed in Sydney, it's an mm-hmm. Italian welfare and education authority or yep. organisation. Um, I was responsible for the development of the first fully bilingual school in Italian and English. It's called the Italian Bilingual School. The the pedagogy we we follow was that the syllabus would be taught in two languages and that is one subject so you're doing you one English oh sorry uh, mathematics you'd be doing it in English In you two you'd be doing mathematics in Italian as well as doing the language sub- uh, subjects mm-hmm. and what we we know is that we actually develop fully bilingual people and it's the same in in mixed cultural uh, marriages where the evidence suggests that with two parents, if they speak different languages, those parents speaking that language directly to that child means that that child develops far quicker. It does take more time then to develop capacity and facility in English, but then the longer term benefits and the cognitive development and the ability to transfer concepts from language to language, uh, it's very, very strong. Uh, so, yes. So, um, I remember uh, telling the teachers that the Italian teachers were not allowed to speak English at all in the school, apart from in the staff room and the, oh, wow. the same for the English teachers weren't allowed <laughs> to speak Italian and and the children really reacted to that and they got to understand that and they got to learn in two languages at exactly at the same time. Mm-hmm. That theory is now being considered for Aboriginal languages as well um, as as a potential, um, I'm going to say, disruptor to some of the disadvantage in terms of the school system, but yeah. the Northern Territory government hasn't been that keen.
0: No, no, that's true. Now, Pino, is that the way you raised your family? Did, um, uh, do you speak Italian at home?
1: Well, that's, it's a great it's a great question. Am I Italian? I came here as a four-year-old with full Italian skills, but I lived with a very large family for a number of years. With my relatives, we only spoke dialect, so I steadily lost language. So my view has also been that unless you are a, a speaker of language in its purest sense, that is you have literacy as well as language, that that should not be um, taught to children. So in my household, my wife's English and I, my Italian, I would not say is at that (laughs) level. But in the same way, I insist that my mother only talks to my children in Italian uh, because her English is not (laughs) going to be great. (laughs) But her Italian's excellent. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And the kids also were able to avail themselves of Italian language school. Both of my daughters were able to do HSC Italian and in fact my oldest daughter went on to university studying Italian as well so mm. the the beauty of that is that they are bilingual mm. and um, and they benefit from that in so many ways but more it's around how you, you frame concepts and how you actually I find at times that I, I want to say something and it's far better in Italian than in English and loses in that translation so that, that ability to understand notions from linguistic um, uh, frameworks is very important
0: to me. That's an incredibly important point. And I was going to ask you about how linguistic diversity enriches Australian society. But you've really captured it then in, in what you've talked about this sense that um, be, being able to think and uh, in different languages actually enables you to get frameworks and models in your head of different ways of approaching problems and solutions. Is, is that one of the benefits of linguistic diversity? And, and would you point to any others?
1: Yes, I think it's a really good one, and it's it, it's one that actually needs to be unpacked around how we discuss languages. During the 1980s, we had a, a very big push on languages. A, a fine academic called Joe Lablanco um, was very instrumental under the the Hawke government in terms of developing a national languages policy. Um, that tended to suggest that language was important in its own right, and that has to some extent been overwritten by the economic rationalist approach to to saying, well, the only languages we want are those which are going to assist with trade or our are, are, are economic languages mm-hmm. and we started to develop this notion of economic languages so all of a sudden no Mandarin. don't study Italian, study Indonesian, study Japanese, study mm-hmm. Chinese and what it didn't do is that that philosophy didn't actually allow children who could have benefited from learning their own home or heritage language from feeling part of their families, being able to communicate with their extended families, being able to travel with those languages, feeling proud of that language. We were mm-hmm. basically told some languages are some languages are not good. Mm. And I think we're still fighting that fight. Um, we've lost a, a huge number of language teachers to our school systems because we've actually preferred some languages over numbers.
0: It, it is an interesting point when you think about how multicultural we are, that in actual fact, we haven't created more roles for multilingual individuals to volunteer within schools as well. There are just mm. a, a wealth of opportunities for bringing in Diverse thinking, diverse ways of, um, of articulating thought and, and learning new languages that can come simply because you've got a diverse community around you. But somehow or other, we think we've just got to have teachers that teach it. And I recognise the importance of that, um, that training. But at the same time, just exposing people to other languages in whatever way you can is valuable.
1: Yes, I think it's really interesting, Anthea, there is a huge movement now at the local library level where you'll have story time in different languages and you'll invite family in and mm-hmm. and in and especially out of Victoria with three-year-old kindergarten, four-year-old kindergarten, a really big push that if we're going to actually take young children into early childhood education, we need to understand that their, their language or their home language is going to be really important. But what happens is that there's this absolute legitimacy before school, and as soon as we go into formal schooling, then we get this range of narratives saying, oh, the, the curriculum is overcrowded, uh, <laughs> they need to learn this, they to learn this, and languages fall by the wayside. So it's really interesting we legitimised it in terms of early childhood, but we tend to make it a lot more difficult as we're going through the schooling system, yeah. that we're not actually valuing it, especially uh, when compared to the push on STEM or the push on general English literacy.
0: I think also that the formality and the competitiveness of schooling, especially um, uh, secondary schooling, tends to take a lot of the fun out of learning a language mm-hmm. that you become all caught up with the, the uh, specifics of how to pronounce or, or, you know, what goes before or after a particular word and that sort of thing. Whereas the informality of being exposed to language and just picking up things is uh, is still a really valuable way of um, highlighting that this is an important part of Australian society, and that we can all enjoy it in some way, shape, or form.
1: Yes, absolutely, I agree totally.
0: <laughs> now you had mentioned earlier uh, when we first started talking about multicultural marketing and how important um, getting a, using language as a way of being able to communicate with the various um, customers that you might have is uh, is really quite relevant. But I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about multicultural marketing and what it is that perhaps businesses these days are not tapping into when they think about um, the diverse society. Are they simply saying, well, we do it this way, therefore we're trying to, to, um, you know, we'll continue to do it regardless of where you come from? Or are they actually being more nuanced and tailored?
1: Uh, you'd 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 think that the theory around multicultural marketing is derived from that early thinking around multicultural affairs, looking at the 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 social and and the economic impact. It was called productive diversity under Paul Keating when he was there. So he framed this whole discussion around the value of of diversity. Now, from a marketer's perspective, there are two frames of, of reference. One is. Well, before we get to the two frames of reference, the reality is the population is highly diverse, mm-hmm. and even if they do speak English, they do still live within cultural frameworks and and cultural communities. Um, I know myself. Uh, we've just recently done, out of the company, a, a, a series of, of videos on the social model of disability, and we had a person from a Hindi background say, "You know, where's our Hindi piece?" And I said, mm-hmm. "Well, um, but the data says that 97% of your community speaks English well." Um, but it didn't matter. They wanted it in language. So yeah. the, that is the reality. The reality is we have a demography which is multilingual and multicultural. From a perspective of businesses or even government, then there are a number of things need to take place. The first frame of reference is to say, well, if what we are doing or producing is this, who is it most relevant to? And understanding that if I'm t- selling children's products, that the child rate in ethnic communities is far stronger and higher than other communities. There mm-hmm. may be greater needs, more than their presence in the community it actually might be enhanced. So should I be actually telling them about my products because they are and going to require them more than other communities. So Australia has a birth rate of 1.7. Um, the ethnic communities scale up really strongly. Mm-hmm. The Arabic about 3.2. Uh, the Pacific Island communities state about five. Mm-hmm. And what to get to the African communities, we're looking at seven, eight kids per family. Yeah. So there's an economic argument says there may be some products which are absolutely apt for certain markets or certain segments of that market. So it's understanding how big they are, what languages they speak, where they live, what media they're consuming. It, then there's, yeah. sorry. No, no, Anthea. no. Uh, well,
0: I was just thinking, it is really interesting, isn't it? The, the tailored marketing and, market and, and the use of data in order to highly tailor where you market is something that's been discussed, at least for the last Ten, you yes. know, 10 years or so and yet I'm just wondering what is the what's the fear do you think that exists within marketers is it lack of knowledge and and a lack of multicultural staff that actually don't know how to deal with language and don't know how to deal with these more nuanced uh, communities that that is stopping them because it, it the logic must be there in their brains there's just something that they haven't figured out
1: it, it's a Perfect question, Um, and to some extent I have to blame the industry itself, that is the advertising, the communications, public relations industry. They are very strongly monocultural. Mm -hmm. And they do have second geners from different backgrounds, but they're not employed for their cultural background. They're employed for the skill sets they bring to work in the English market. So there is an inherent lack of, one, an understanding or exposure, but secondly, in terms of how to actually utilise it. So it's a skill deficit. So I find it really interesting in terms of um, how precise you can be. We've recently had a small outbreak of Japanese encephalitis virus. Um, We were taken on by... uh, a government department, the Department of Health to promote um, uh, the need for for uh, uh, caution as well as where to get immunizations from so what we were able to do is is actually look at where the outbreaks were, who has access to or lives near either piggeries or water, water courses mm-hmm. and we were able to define a really specific set of markets which wouldn't be your traditional uh, Italian Greek, uh, Arabic, Chinese Spanish, Vietnamese mm-hmm. are kind of like the top six, none of those are in that mix and I think that's where the beauty is so the question is what's stopping people what's stopping people is one a lack of personal framing around this existence they see the diversity is something you go into a meal in in (laughs) Chinatown or that you go and enjoy rather than mm. yeah rather than how people are actually living their lives so I think we've got a lot uh, further to go in terms of who owns the ability to reflect our images and to develop our communications
0: Absolutely, I think that uh, I think you made some really important points there. Um, but one of the, the example that you just gave about the Japanese encephalitis uh, communications, there are a number of different. Whether it's during COVID, or <laughs> even coming up with the voice referendum, this um, the importance of simply getting knowledge out to communities. Is, is really vital in so many different respects. D- do you think that at a government level, and I, I know, you know you'll have to be circumspect about how you answer this, but do you think we're really getting to understand the importance of that linguistic diversity and mm. communications channels at, at a government level?
1: I have to say yes and the example I'll, I'll give when I first started working in this field about 30 years ago um, the government approach to communications was a quota they, they indicated when I first started five percent of ethnic of, of media spend had to go to ethnic media to some extent it was application of the, the the ethnic media but it it did create some opportunities. Uh, in the last couple of years, though, and it's now two years, the federal government has actually developed a different way of procurement where it actually uses villages. And in every village, there is a multicultural and an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander expert. And we get to sit at the table to actually do these communications. So I think it's... it. In part, is also a response to what happened in COVID, where people realised that just translating information was not going to be enough. You needed to actually be able to speak in the language of the community, not just the the language itself, but how it's delivered, who delivers it, what is the face and the credential of the person delivering it, how do we actually deal with then individual communities where there may be resistance, Um, and that ability to actually say, a communication on its own will not be effective across the board. Mm-hmm. We actually need to be able to tailor it, nuance it, and deliver it to meet where the community is at. And that ability then is it, it requires a little bit more work. You actually have to go and speak to communities, find out about them, understand their their comforts. Um, so I find it really interesting in the Italian community. You can talk about people's backaches and they and and any type of problem, even things like bowel. <laughs> bowel movement bowel cancer and everyone's comfortable but try to talk about dementia try to talk about mental health try to talk about sexual diversity try mm. to talk about a number uh, of disability disability and there are really strong resistances so In our practice, we do talk about a diversity, and and it's not really a diversity. It's called a sensitivity filter. If something's not sensitive, like immunizing children, there are no barriers to actually communicating. It can be quite didactic. But if something is culturally sensitive, you have to actually take a different frame and say we need to actually understand how it's spoken about what people think, what people feel, and then work through community structures or individuals who can lead the discussion from the inside, because coming from the outside looks like we're actually telling off the community. We're actually um, victimising the community.
0: That that's a really a really interesting point and uh, an incredibly important. And I'll raise one thing with you, Pino. I'm not. I know you. Um, well, I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that in the referendum, when people are actually there to vote, they have to write the word yes or write the word Correct. no. And um, and so this is going to be one of those incredibly important points, as you say, to get through Um, And the cultural nuances of help people learning to write yes or no um, in English, simply to be able to be, um, you know, have their vote counted at the referendum. I'm assuming this is one of those things where there are cultural nuances about how you communicate that need, but also how do you deliver the the mechanisms by which people can learn to do that
1: exactly and it's I'm the perfect person to ask because I have the responsibility by uh, the, given to us by the AEC to develop those communications. Mm. We will be developing material in 34 languages, and the issue you identify that people have to write yes and no is a major issue. Mm. It is a major issue. But it's also a bigger issue in terms of what does referendum mean? Yeah. What does a double majority mean? Majority of states and majority of people. There are some real fundamental concepts that we'll have to work with two. And part of that is working with linguistic experts, translators who are, are very, very good and qualified and working out in X language, what is the best way to do it? How do we position the English word and still create a translated meaning? What happens when there's not a direct translation? Yeah. So it really is a nuanced understanding of the linguistic capacities and the words that are used and translating them in the, in the substantive sense, not literal, but substantive, that actually is Going to deliver people the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, you think about referendum. We know it fairly clearly. What does it mean for someone who's recently here? Mm-hmm. Um, the voice itself. What is it? So, um, the role that uh, cultural perspectives will play will be working for the AEC. We're politically neutral. We won't be um, pushing the yes or no case, but we will be strongly involved in letting people know exactly what's going to be required from them. What the referendum is and how to actually participate in it. And I think that's, it's a fundamental part of democracy in Australia. Oh. And I've got to say the Australian Electoral Commission have been outstanding. I've now worked on 10 elections and two referendum and and even the East Timorese elections. So um, there's a lot of experience there and we work very hard to make sure that people are equipped so that they can fulfil their democratic yeah. um, opportunity and right.
0: I, I- Pino, personally, you are an excellent communicator. Um, I wondered if maybe you could share what you think are the guiding principles in in making these sort of complex processes like the referendum accessible to multicultural communities. What, what are the sort of two or three principles that yeah. all of us should actually be applying when we're thinking about communications?
1: Yeah. It's really good. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I think the first principle is understand that uh, there is going to be difference across your ethnic communities. So the ability to take one message and, and just translate it is, is not going to necessarily work. That we need to understand that there are huge differences by literacy. There are some people highly, highly literate, um, brilliant, and they can do many languages and others who um, would have come here with a primary school education and predominantly receive information orally so one is an acceptance that there's diversity within that diversity secondly the other principle is really understanding the market i say that people say to me oh we need to get a campaign out you know what ethnic media should we use and i say we're not going to talk about ethnic media what is it you want to achieve who do you want to target and then what we do is we overlay demographic analysis any existing evidence is there an over um, uh, an underrepresented uh, representation of certain women in breast screening well that's really important what is the age framework for a breast screening? Mm-hmm. That's really important. So you actually start building then this nuanced approach. It's only at that point where you've identified what you want to communicate and Uh, who you want to communicate to, then you say, okay, if they're our targets, what is their best, what is the best way of them uh, communicating with them? How do they receive information, process information? So then the other thing is, it's not a a one approach fits all. I need to be able to say, there are some communities who are highly literate, written form, online works brilliantly. Others where I, I oral messaging and indeed supported messaging through intermediaries is going to work. So that's the second principle, and I think the third principle, given that you have limited to three, which is great, <laughs> is actually engaging with the communities to see how they want to be spoken to. Yeah, it's all very well saying I can understand it, I can I can develop the best strategy, and then at field or when you try to implement it, just doesn't work. It might be because I fail to understand a nuance. I fail to understand that by doing something here, I've actually alienated this other part of the community because in the community, there are divisions. So I'm not going to understand that unless I actually spend the time to get to know the communities.
0: Now, you you raised that earlier um, and I I really want to draw on your experience as a board member of the National Suicide Prevention Office Mm. because suicide is an incredibly difficult conversation to have with anybody at any point in time. Are there particular things that you're helping to encourage the office to think through when they're actually dealing with, uh, with suicide prevention?
1: Yeah, there are a few actually. The first is uh, suicide prevention is, is made a little bit difficult because of the data sources. Where Where is it happening? Is it something we should be equipping the whole community to have better mental health, so that then they're not going to be as likely to be um, have suicidal thoughts. Um, that's all very important, but there is a limitation of data, and mainly because those who collect the data are the actual funeral homes and the undertakers who actually have to record ethnicity on on the forms, and they mm-hmm. don't. The, the many in many jurisdictions that don't exist. So my my thing is to say, all right, rather than worry about a large scale data source, let's consider what aspects of people's lives would make them most vulnerable Um, a refugee arrival is a vulnerability what are the supports around it we already know in our settlement area that that the humanitarian programs the HSP the uh, torture and trauma services are all geared towards that so what we then should start looking at is are there actually sub groups within um, the communities who may indeed be more vulnerable to suicidality because of um, their circumstances. And and it's a really interesting one because most of the, the work works on the life course, uh, you know, kids leaving mm-hmm. school, um, moving into relationships, moving out of employment, moving into um, uh a, non-work in terms yeah. of the uh, older area. And we know that uh, one of the largest groups who are actually um, suiciding are people who are in their late years, 70s to 80s. It's it's a major crisis. So then my advice is, how do we actually look at where we need to put in the preventative measures so that people have got support that makes sense to them so that, that they feel like their mental health is kept well and their wellness is a priority so that we don't get people who become vulnerable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Just just as an aside, Pino, I just... Um, I'm curious about data and I, I have a particular view but I, I'm not necessarily going to share that with you because <laughs> I'd really like your sort of unaffected yeah. view. Data or, or measurement of ethnicity if you like tends to be one of those go-to things at the moment that everybody whether it's a business or or whatever it's all about oh no we need to collect data we need to know where people are from. Um, but What you've created or or outlined is how important it is in specific circumstances.
1: Correct.
0: Do do you have a view about this data collection? Is is collecting ethnicity regardless just important because then we've got it? Or is it more about what do you actually want to use the data for?
1: Well, I think it is the latter. Um, Part of the data discussion is around privacy and whether the data collected could be used against people because it could actually identify Mm -hmm. them. I'm a real believer in our privacy principles and there are nine of them, but the one that makes most sense to me is that you don't collect data unless there's a purpose and the person who's providing that data understands the purpose. So if you ask a lot of people, you know, write down all your details, they'll go, well, I'm not that comfortable. But if you say, write down all your details, this because we're going to use this information for this purpose and this is how it's actually going to benefit you then they'll be a lot more um, comfortable with it we do, um, there are some extreme aspects of this in terms of data collection for me um, over now 40 years of practice 30 years in private practice um, the language spoken at home for me is one of the best de facto identifiers of ethnicity and I've been able to prove it a couple of times as well Um, when we started asking the first questions around ancestry I was able to do a cross tabulation between the ancestry question and the language spoken at home by country of birth. It's a very a bit esoteric <laughs> talking about that. But, but what was really interesting is that um, country of birth wasn't enough because people speak different languages. Languages wasn't enough because we actually don't know enough about them. By actually then analyzing how people identified themselves and then comparing that with an ancestry, would they correlate it? Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that during a census, people write, do you speak a language of an English? Yes, at home. What language? Even if they're almost native English speakers, they'll identify that as an ethnicity indicator, not an mm-hmm. ancestry indicator, but a lived ethnicity indicator. And, and the ethnic media a part of this as well they'll tell their communities how to answer the the demographic questions in the census yeah to be able to get the numbers up because then the more numbers you have so as you can see it's a complex area but for me if you're looking to create a service or sell a product, understanding the community is important, that's demographic data from the census, then there is an aspect of how well have I tapped into that market? Mm-hmm. How well am I selling that product? How effective is my screening program? I can only know that if I actually can then compare the, the, the diversity, the ethnic diversity of my client base with the potential and that gap is then very important.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right and, and can completely see it from a marketing perspective. I think my concern is is certainly within mm. businesses, the, um, the amount of um, profiling, if you like, that they're mm. doing of their staff Um, and asking them to identify their particular um, ethnic heritage and what that might be, with actually no intent of doing anything in particular. They just want to know it so that they can report it and say, gee whiz, aren't we terrific? We've got this diversity, Um, rather than actually thinking about how do we utilise that to build the culture that we want to have within this organisation. So...
1: and can I add to that because it's such a good point? There, there are two ways of considering that that staff diversity. One is an EEO equal opportunity mm-hmm. one, where we try to remove barriers so talented people, regardless of their background, can come in. Yeah. Then the other one is a really important one as well. To what extent is our linguistic and cultural asset base in an organization going to assist us to the work we do yeah. and frame it around the, the clients? And and I think that's right. If you're just collecting it for reporting purposes and, and as we know in those big private companies, even though you've got a whole lot of diversity, It is an objective fact. It's not a material relevance to Mm -hmm. what's actually being done. It's not like you're using, you know, um, I won't mention any (laughs) accounting firms, but it's not like using the the breadth of that diversity to actually enhance practice or to open new markets. It's just the fact you've got diversity. Uh, So I'm very much of a view that there needs to be a purpose for it.
0: Uh, Is the purpose
1: equal employment? then that's fine. Is it improving your capacity to provide better services? Then that's an imperative.
0: Pino, time has flown by, but in actual fact, no, 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 (laughs) but I have one last question, which I'm sure Mm. won't be a short one, Um, but you're very involved with Netball Australia. And I'm I'm quite interested to know whether or not you've experienced um, multilingual or, or different languages being used in Netball um, because i've I've seen writings that you've done about the role of sport that people's um, th- those that aren't necessarily engaged whether it's in netball or other sports who don't have any familiarity with sport anyway. so how do you go about communicating what this is and what the benefit is and then when they join is there this do, have you experienced anywhere this sort of multilingual capacity yeah. by coaches or other players to to
1: Nurture. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, Netball, because um, I must admit it's like many organisations where their heritage is is from a, a, a narrow uh, range of cultures. Uh, so I've looked at Netball and I've understood there was some uh, money made available by, by Australia Post for a, a broader multicultural sports program. And during that, there was a program called One Netball and I sat on an mm-hmm. advice group for that. It was great. It was really interesting. It was it, it, it created some wonderful activities. Um, it did focus on diversity, but what it did fail to do is to actually say, what is netball? Who runs netball? How accommodating is netball? So um, the the netball clubs at the local level are small fiefdoms and they're very, very hard to change. Mm-hmm. And so because they're so hard to change, the sense that they're open to diversity is questionable. So um, allowing Uh, girls to wear a hijab while they play it 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 doesn't happen everywhere uh modification of dress doesn't happen everywhere it's not that accommodating Mm -hmm. and it's for that reason to some extent netball is not developing the multicultural base that it could do because it hasn't actually worked the the principles of diversity through its system it has states and they're very autonomous. It has clubs and they're very autonomous. And the way to achieve change is to have to do it collaboratively. Mm-hmm. You have to show the benefit. And at the moment, there is a real selection. When I go up, and I've had two daughters, right, so I've spent many, many Saturdays over many years at nipal <laughs> Um what I see is I see, very interestingly, I see um, there, there is an ethnicity there, but they tend to be a, a second or third generation, and they are mm-hmm. the mothers who um, might have started playing netball but want their, their daughters too, and there's and that's Lebanese, Greek, Italian. There's a fairly strong push there. But funnily enough, the fathers are pushing for the girls to play soccer or football.
2: ah
0: oh.
1: And it's and I've said to uh, the sports, if you look at the and I mentioned some data before about the number of children in in non-English families, if you look at where our demography is going, unless you engage with those children, they will not be going to your sport, and you will become smaller it's a it's a negative yeah. um result because the reality is they 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 uh, represent such a large as uh, large amount so I, I thought it was great what netball australia was doing but it was only doing it one that once it had resources which were made available to it it wasn't intrinsic to the organization yeah. and i think that that's in the telling as well so i'd I'd hate to be so crass as to say, if I look at the Australian netball team, I think they are a wonderful, wonderful group of sports people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I look at the diversity within them, there is hardly any. And yeah. that's our issue.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I have a dream of a South Korean coach teaching a South Korean team of netballers and in, oh. in South Korean. <laughs> it would be uh, rather wonderful. Yeah.
1: And I, I, In fact, you asked, do I hear other languages on the netball court? No, I don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, at least we're seeing that AFL games are now being broadcast in different languages. So, uh, I think, isn't
1: that brilliant? I think really I terrific, think it's extraordinary,
0: and wonderful to listen to if you ever get the chance. Pino, it's it's uh, just been absolute delight to uh, to talk with you. i have I'm so appreciated this time, and uh, and you've shared so many great ideas for anybody to actually incorporate into their lives. So I really appreciate you. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And it's been so comfortable. I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> Not at all. It's a pleasure. Well, hi, Matt. As our intercultural communications intern here from Monash University, we're delighted to have you share in listening to this podcast and giving some feedback at uh, the end of it.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Incredible conversation with Pino. Such an interesting character and such a great experience that he's had in, in the work that he's doing.
0: He's, he's really been a pioneer in this space of, um, of really helping people to better understand how to embrace linguistic diversity and put it into practice, mm. particularly from a marketing perspective, of course. But uh, he, he brought up a whole lot of different things that we should think about Um, and and encourage others to think about.
2: Absolutely, especially for me as a a newcomer to Australia. I've only been here for a a few months. So getting that kind of context of the multilingualism and what that means for Australian culture Mm -hmm. is particularly interesting. A few of the things he said really stood out to me. Uh, I remember at one point he said that there's a new legitimacy and that is diversity of linguistics, diversity of language. And really hear that kind of... uh, Then translates to Australian culture being a multilingual culture. And that really is something that uh, I've picked up on a lot, but to hear it put in that terms is really interesting, really fascinating. But then within Mm. that as well, it's not just, oh, here we are as one big multilingual society, there's diversity within the diversity itself. Yeah. And the importance of localizing language and understanding the localized language is really interesting. And, And the
0: nuances of communication that have a cultural overlay on the linguistic so just because you might be presenting something in hindi doesn't mean you can necessarily present the same fact to everybody in the same way you've really got to understand intergenerational dynamics or um, the the uh, the variations of interpretations of certain words as well
2: absolutely when he talked about having that kind of sensitivity filter that cultural sensitivity filter it's not yeah. just the words that you're saying it's how you broach the topic mm-hmm. even absolutely fascinating really insightful
0: i thought i thought when the way he talks about it really does help to build a sense of pride in in australia's embracing of that multilingualism and hopefully we can see a few more of those sort of barriers breaking down from a big business perspective that they'll start to <clears throat> orient their own particular uh, marketing techniques into uh, areas with a little bit more of um, professionalism if you like
2: Not just professionalism, just a a reflection of the actual use of these languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, Pino said something about who is it who owns the availability for these languages. Uh, And being more reflective of the actual diversity of the communities, that's something that businesses have to take on if they want to survive, Sure,
0: You would think so. Yeah, you (laughs) you would hope so.
2: Uh, I would also be really interested to see, he's been working in this field for so long, what has the kind of cultural shift been over the years and how mm-hmm. people think about languages and how they approach them, especially yeah. when people like him are working in this space to really push the acceptance of diversity forward?
0: Oh, and it was great to see him be so positive about government's approach. To communications and and multilingual communications, even if perhaps business is a little bit further behind. But it was really great that he felt so positive about that work. And of course, the Australian Electoral Commission really embracing it in this particular point in time.
2: Yeah. Right. Really, really interesting stuff, especially when you think that the ties between language and culture and identity are so strong. So being able to have that acceptance of different languages means it's only going to be positive for your own culture and your own sense of identity. Yeah. It's wonderful. Uh,
0: absolutely. No, I'm, I'm I'm just delighted to do this particular podcast. I think we've all got something to take away from it. So it's it's going to be really, really exciting to figure out what uh, where will we move on to from here. So Indeed. thank you very much, Matt.
2: Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Matri and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlan Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au.